You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Welcome to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 12. Today, we sit down with Harriet Frew, who I met as a mutual podcaster. She is the host of the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast and is a really experienced counselor in the UK. Besides for offering individual therapy and her podcast, Harriet has online courses, trainings, and breakthrough days, which we'll talk a little bit about in our conversation. Harriet specializes in the treatment of bulimia, binge eating disorder, and OSFED, which is the other specified category. And she really focuses on the psychology of disordered eating or eating disorders. Harriet is a BACP accredited counselor and eating disorder practitioner and has worked in an adult eating disorder NHS service and privately since 2003. Harriet brings a ton of experience and knowledge, and I'm really excited to share our conversation. Let's dive right in. So Harriet, thank you so much for doing this. I know a few months ago we were on your podcast, so I'm really excited to do it on mine. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. Really pleased to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to talk about this topic, I think that, you know, narrowing the conversation to talking just about bulimia or binge purge is important because we talk about eating disorders in general so much, and we kind of neglect to look at very specifics, very specific pieces. So first of all, you specialize in bulimia. What brought you to specialize in bulimia? So I very much came to working in this field as the wounded healer through my own experience <laughs> of having bulimia nervosa. Yeah, so I developed bulimia in my late teens and I had it for about seven years. And it sort of started off through um, sort of going through a very sort of strict period of dieting. But that was triggered by different stresses that were going on in my life at the time. I had some sort of various things going on at home, sort of split with my first boyfriend, which at the time was sort of really, really devastating. And um, yes. doing my <laughs> exams, you know, just that kind of combination of everything coming together, really. And then I guess not feeling good enough in myself, feeling a bit out of control and deciding that I wanted to do this diet and change how I look. And um, yeah, that's kind of how I, I sort of fell into bulimia. I had a very sort of brief period of um, having anorexia nervosa for probably about three or four months. But very quickly, I fell into cycles of binging and purging. And then I sort of suffered with bulimia for around seven years. And it was very difficult back then. You know, I'm quite old getting help <laughs> at that time. <laughs> so thankfully, things I know we're still really under resourced with eating disorder treatments. But I think things have improved a little bit over the years. Um, but Definitely. back then, there wasn't really a lot of help <laughs> available. So, um, so I very much came into it as a kind of, you know, naive young woman mm -hmm. wanting to save the world <laughs> you know what as a was the treatment healer. options like back then I mean there wasn't in the area that I lived in you know there wasn't specific help for eating disorders so I went to the doctors and you know literally if you wanted to get help you had to privately fund it 
which, you know, I guess, you know, we're lucky in the UK, we do have our national health service where you do get kind of free help, you know, it's paid for through your taxes. Oh, wow. But <laughs> What a cool idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess even to this day, that free treatment is really only available still for the people that are really, really unwell. It's, you know, not really available for people with mild to moderate diagnoses. But back then there was very little help available. So you really had to go private. But um, yeah, I ended up just having some sort of general counselling, actually. And that's what got me through it. But um, there wasn't sort of a specialist bulimia or eating disorder treatment in my area back then. Mm -hmm. That's pretty incredible. I mean, you think about the work that we do every day with clients and that that wasn't available to you and you basically not didn't on your own. You had some help, but not specific to bulimia and not any of this like fancy eating disorder treatment. That's like pretty incredible. Yeah, no, I guess it, I guess it is. I mean, I suppose it, you know, looking back <laughs> on it, I think, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful that I did find a way through it. And, you know, I do take on board as well that um, I think, although I went through some quite difficult times and some trauma, that there were some things in my earlier life as well that had built resilience for me, you know, helped me build resilience and, and helped me cope. And I did have some support networks, particularly probably even through mm -hmm. my good friends rather than my family. So a lot of those things really kind of helped pull me through. Yeah. So it just, you know, to kind of lay the foundation in terms of helping people understand bulimia. So first of all, what is it? And then maybe kind of expand on it to say how it's different perhaps from other eating disorders. Okay. So yeah, so bulimia nervosa. So I think the word bulimia itself actually means like ox hunger or something. What? Um, <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, basically, so bulimia nervosa is an eating disorder. Most people with bulimia nervosa are probably normal weights or overweight. So often symptoms of bulimia are quite hidden. If someone has bulimia, they tend to go through cycles of very restrictive eating, where they are sort of dieting, you know, eliminating different food groups, counting calories, being very restrictive. But then that is sort of interspersed with periods of binge eating. And a binge is eating a large amount of food in a small amount of time. So much more than someone would normally eat in a normal sitting. And there's a sense of loss of control, secrecy, usually a lot of shame around that. So people are kind of going between the restrictive cycles and then the binge cycles. And then after someone has a binge with bulimia, then they will usually purge. And that can be through self-induced vomiting and taking laxatives, diuretics, diet pills, over-exercising and other means too, I think as well, really. But I guess those are the most kind of common ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to highlight that just for a second. When people think purging very often, they think, oh, that's self-induced vomiting, which it could be, but it also could be any one of these other modes of purging that are dangerous in their own way. And so when we see somebody who's purging in another way, it doesn't mean it's any less, I guess, severe or serious. They're all not that great. Can you talk about the ex exercise piece for a second? Because I think that people don't really maybe think about it at all, you know, just kind of like expand on relationship with exercise and how that relates to the binge and, and why that's considered a purge. Sure. So I guess if someone is using exercise, um, it's become a very sort of compulsive thing that they feel they have to do after they've binged to kind of burn calories and to kind of get back into a sort of you know, to kind of balance the energy equations. So they might be kind of calculating how many 
calories they've had in a binge. So then they will be kind of exercising often for a certain time period, you know, doing certain kind of um, intensity of exercise to try and kind of burn those calories. Um, So it's very much in relation to compensating for the eating episode. Um, and And it usually sort of takes on a very sort of, um, you know, compulsive punishing um, kind of element to it all. Really, it's not kind of joyful movements where you are really loving it. It's something that you kind of feel that you have to do after, you know, after you've binged whatever to sort of, um, yeah, to balance things out again. Yeah. And sometimes uh, if people have trouble understanding that some of the questions that I like to ask them is, do you exercise when you're not feeling well or when you're sick? Do you exercise when your body is telling you that it wants to rest? What sort of calculations go through your mind? All that kind of stuff. Because if it's a math calculation about input output, then we already have our red flags going up. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? I think people will describe sometimes like waking up in the morning and, you know, maybe after a binge or just generally anyway, but almost like thinking about the amount of exercise they've got to do before they go to bed again. Mm -hmm. And it's almost that feeling of dread and overwhelm and self-punishment. You know, there's not a lot of joy in this whole process. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So another point that I wanted to highlight is how this can look so similar to people who are what we call simply, quote, dieting and that, you know, we're talking about a pretty serious eating disorder, but like all eating disorders, it's a continuum. And so on one side, there's healthy eating or healthy relationship with food. And on the other side, there's an eating disorder and the entire continuum is all disordered. So somebody who is dieting or has a poor relationship with exercise, we're also talking to them. We're also talking about the people who have this sort of compensatory calculation going on with their food and exercise. So just wanted to highlight that for a second. Sure. Yeah. I think it's a great point, isn't it? Because I think many people might not meet diagnostic criteria for bulimia, but they are still, their days are still ruled by like doing like those math calculations in their head, having to do a certain amount of exercise Mm -hmm. and it becoming this kind of compulsion and being really preoccupied with food, maybe experiencing some symptoms of starvation and then mm-hmm. consequences as well of binging. So yeah, absolutely. I think it's I think it's so important, isn't it? Because I think even if you don't fall neatly into a diagnostic box, um, if you are experiencing some of these symptoms, you are still kind of worthy of getting help. And you mm-hmm. should like see that as a little red flag and um, take that seriously. Exactly. Even some of the vocabulary we hear when we go to the gym or when gyms were open about, oh, I I ate so much last night. I got to work this off. Or even the instructor kind of, you know, pushing people to work harder and and burn that cake or whatever. It's all in the society, if you will, in the air, in the gym. So that's all that's we're talking about that. What is your understanding of, I guess, either the treatment or the recovery process for somebody who's struggling with uh, the restrict or binge purge cycle? Sure. So I guess is the way I look at it is kind of working on the symptoms and also on those deeper levels. So mm-hmm. in terms of working more on the symptoms, I guess what you're trying to support someone to do is break out of those cycles of restrictive eating and then binging and purging. So doing things like establishing a regular eating pattern, trying to stabilize your blood sugar, um, you know, including all food groups, you know, slowly and gently beginning to give up dieting. I understand that, you know, can be a momentous one. And I think that's really important because I think 
some of that work, the symptom work needs to be done because you can talk about the deeper issues till the cows come home almost. But if you Mm -hmm. are still stuck in those cycles and you are starving yourself, it's really, really hard to stop binging and, and purging and all those other things. So I think that, you know, the symptom work needs to be focused on, but also then as well in parallel with kind of the deeper work. Cause I guess someone with bulimia has probably got some quite deep core beliefs, perhaps. And when I say core belief, I kind of mean just how you feel about yourself deep down. Mm-hmm. So not feeling good enough, feeling unworthy, feeling unlovable. And that might be down to different things that have happened in your childhood. You know, it could have been through some trauma, um, you know, or, or maybe not. You know, it could have just been through different stresses that have happened over the years, like maybe bereavements or, you know, experiencing a divorce or bullying at school or it can be a multitude of different things. So I think it's really helpful as well to kind of understand a bit why mm. you've developed it, you know, looking at those deeper core things looking maybe as well at what the trigger was, because sometimes, you know, we can experience these deeper things that happen, but often there's a trigger that tips us over the edge and that can be a stressor or a transition or a change or, or a diet even sometimes, you know, the diet can sometimes Mm -hmm. be the trigger. So having that kind of greater understanding and I guess as well, working on motivation for change, people with bulimia are probably often in two minds about change, feeling a bit ambivalent, feeling scared about weight gain, feeling scared about their body changing, feeling scared about giving up dieting. So the motivational work, I think, is a really important part. And and then I guess in terms of other aspects of the treatment itself, it's like, you know, binging and purging behaviors can become a way of kind of regulating your emotions. Mm -hmm. And it's finding kind of new and healthier ways of coping, starting to become more self-compassionate, working on body image, self-esteem. Um, and more, but that's the kind of whistle stop tour, I guess. Yeah. A little bit of an overview. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you say the, look at the symptoms kind of really addressing the binge purging in the beginning, because then we can't really utilize all the deeper work. I'm, I'm sure you have this people come in and say, Oh, I have a binge problem or I have a binge purge problem. Can you fix it? And the first thing you have to fix is the restrict problem that kind of leads to the binge problem because you're probably not eating enough, which is something that there's a tremendous amount of resistance because they're like, no, I have an overeating problem. I don't have any other sort of problem. So, you know, just keeping that in mind when addressing the behaviors is that this is all part of a larger picture. So how do you see, I mean, I know we talked about kind of a snippet of an overview and there's obviously so much more, but Maybe it might be helpful to even give an example of somebody and try to understand a little bit more of, I guess, the psychology of it or these underlying issues. Do you have an example that we can kind of unpack for a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy even just to talk a bit more about my my own example, I guess, you know, if that's helpful. Oh, that's fun. Sure. Yeah. If you're okay <laughs> with that. <laughs> Um, so where do you want me to start kind of like, yeah, where do you want me to start with that? Like just sort of talking maybe about what, what were some of the kind of underlying stuff maybe for me that led me to with sort of, or, yeah. Or, yeah, or, yeah, I guess it, it pretty open-ended. So really what thing, what, what comes at, what stands out to you in your mind? And I guess there's a couple of things. So there's the parts of it that are more of like building the foundation and then there's the trigger and then there's also the maintenance of it. So it depends yeah. on where you're at in the trajectory. Yeah, no, sure. So I guess like for me, um, in my early life, actually, my relationship with food was 
pretty healthy and my body image. But I did definitely did always suffer a bit from low self-esteem, probably not feeling good enough for various reasons. So I kind of think the seeds were sown, not really in terms of an eating disorder, but the seeds of just not feeling good enough were kind of mm-hmm. sown in the ground quite early on. And then I think just that accumulation of stresses with everything that happened, you know, with splitting up with my mm-hmm. boyfriend at the time, that was a very, very painful split. And something that I had quite a lot of conflict about is like when I was sort of 17, 18, I really wanted to go off to university and like kind of leave the family home, spread my wings and get out <laughs> in the world, <laughs> as you do. Um, but at the time, like my dad was really against that. You know, he really wanted me to stay at home and work on the farm and do the family business, which is kind of quite unusual, isn't it? Because I think Perhaps some other people have the opposite problem, almost the feeling they're mm-hmm. pushed off to uni. Or, yeah. Um, so <laughs> I guess the real thing for me was just a lot of inner conflict about wanting to, you know, like a real trigger thing for me was that inner conflict of like wanting to please the people around me and to kind of do the right thing by my family. I obviously loved and, you know, I wanted to be accepted by them. But then also I said I felt deep down this just real sense of like kind of knowing that I needed to leave and go off and do my own thing. But um, I thought I couldn't really kind of give myself permission for that. So I was mm-hmm. like really, really, really torn. Um, so very sort of split, I guess, in that way. And the dieting was just a kind of really interesting thing because I had never really focused particularly on my body. But I remember looking in the mirror one day and just thinking, I need to lose weight. And for some reason at that time, I just think with all the stresses going on, it wasn't a conscious thing of thinking, right, I'm going to use this as a means of like control in this like slightly out of control situation. But I guess like looking back, it was a lot about that really. So I just went on this really strict diet, trying to change my body. And I think the intensity of the diet that I went on was so extreme, you know, as somebody probably who... Yeah, and always, you know, I'd never restricted my food, always eaten just a whole range of things, you know, no good or bad foods or anything. And suddenly being so restrictive, my body went to absolute shock. And I really experienced those starvation symptoms really intensely. And um, I think it's really interesting. I think for my own psychology, the way I am sort of genetically kind of um, formed, you know, this is my own interpretation of it. I, I just don't think I was the kind of person that would have, you know, been able to maintain anorexia nervosa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that sort of um, very sort of strict starving. So very, very quickly fell into cycles of um, bulimia. But again, was very much then maintained by, you know, every time I binge, I'd go back to strict dieting again. And, you know, that always felt like the solution to the binge, which of course it wasn't because it perpetuated it. And, and then it took me several years to truly break out of that cycle. Yeah. I love when you had mentioned the almost like conflicted thoughts about some major parts of your life. And even in terms of relationships, like how you felt toward people in your life that were kind of dictating some decisions and the nature of bulimia or the binge purge cycle is I feel this way. Oh no, I can't feel that way. Let me undo it. And then there's this kind of cycle over and over and over where you're never having to feel one or experience one. It's a I have to cancel it out because it's just too intolerable for me to feel one. And so very often, and I'm sure you see this as well, very often there's a, okay, I I feel this way really, really strongly. And I feel this other way really, really strongly. And I don't know how to consolidate the two. Yeah. And I think really true that you often see in bulimia, that kind of real splitting. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, 
I think it's really difficult because I think, again, I'm generalizing here, but I think people with bulimia as well tend to be people that really want to please. They really want to be liked. They really want approval. They really want mm-hmm. that kind of external validation. And of course, if you're always seeking that, you kind of can't please the world and always right. please yourself, can you? <laughs> you're just going to be <laughs> torn. Um, so it's an impossible thing to win at. But then I think... Yeah. It's really tricky. I mean, I know from my own experience, I would feel so guilty for not pleasing. Like in a way, I had this part of me that knew perhaps what my what my kind of soul wanted. But then I mm-hmm. felt so much guilt for that. So I would then please and then I would kind of use the bulimia as a way to sort of almost try and wipe the slate, slate clean and get rid of all those negative feelings that I couldn't deal with. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I think it's really common. And I think. I mean, it's so interesting because I've been recovered from bulimia for, you know, many, many years. Can't certainly put a number on it, but a long time. <laughs> but I think even as to this day, aspects of bulimic behavior, like I, I'm aware I can be quite, you know, I'm, I, I, I can still have that splitting. I have to watch myself a little bit sometimes or, you know, I'm someone mm-hmm. who can be like, really intense you know in a, in a relationship and then I kind of really need space <laughs> to like mm-hmm. stand back again or kind of you know so, yeah. it's, so it's, in, it's, it's interesting um you know something just yeah. to be very self-aware of and the difference is that somebody who's in recovery or somebody who's not utilized not using an eating disorder is that they're aware of this and they kind of take a step back and see how they can then understand what's going on or just experience what's going on as opposed to channeling it through behaviors and feeling safe that way. I'm really happy that you mentioned the almost genetic part about not being able to be anorexic. I think some people with who, who struggle with bulimia often feel like the quote inferior eating disorder because they're not really able to lose weight, you know, which is all part of this idea of like not feeling sick enough or, you know, which is, which is a narrative that so many people have. Um, but I do want to highlight that it, a lot of this is well, or, or a lot, a small part, we don't know is genetic. And so what someone gravitates toward, we can't discount that genetics play a part and that maybe if your body was slightly different, you would have gone for a different sort of way of approaching this. So, you know, just wanting to put that out there that every sort of struggle, no matter how small, large, what it looks like is all it's, we should all be taking it seriously. Yeah, no, it's so very true, isn't it? We, you know, everyone's individual circumstance is very different and everyone's experience is really valid. And um, yeah, it's fascinating really, because I don't personally actually know too much about kind of like the real sort of biological genetics of someone with (laughs) bulimia, but I think. Yeah, neither do I, but (laughs) we can, we can guess a bit. Yeah, I think just more from anecdotal evidence as well of mm-hmm. what, what you sort of see in the therapy room. And again, I'm really generalizing here, but I think, I mean, I know for myself, when I say my genetics, I don't even really mean about my body genetics. I mean, just more how I sort of process emotions. Like I'm someone mm-hmm. in a way that I, I I can't, this is again, I'm really generalizing, but I think if you have a tendency more towards anorexia nervosa, maybe you can put your emotions a bit more in a box and put them, you know, be a bit more disconnected from them. And again, I'm really generalizing here. Whereas I almost feel like with bulimia, (laughs) the emotions are leaking out of that (laughs) box. 
all over yes. the place. And there's something about that as well that then influences, there's almost kind of, there's a metaphor, I think, for your relationship with food, whereas bulimia feels much more kind of chaotic and messy and out of control. And anorexia can feel kind of more pure and like, you know, things tidily away in a box. But mm-hmm. I mean, both are equally damaging and distressing and harmful to one's mental health. Yeah, sure. Something that I'm I'm curious about, because I, I get a lot of questions about this. This is not entirely related, but um, I know that you do a breakthrough day and there, I've got so many questions about how long does this process take and can I do this in six months? So there's, there's obviously a lot of interest in fast tracking recovery. Is that possible? And, and what is a breakthrough day if it is possible to kind of jumpstart something? Sure. So I guess I'm just speaking from my breakthrough days, because I guess there's probably like multiple versions of breakthrough days out there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, with my breakthrough days, I very much sort of promote them, I guess, to people who have done some recovery work already. So they have had some therapy, they have some insight, they probably walked along the recovery road for a certain period, but they are kind of stuck at those last few hurdles. So I would not sort of like encourage someone to do a breakthrough day that's coming in off the street kind of completely fresh to therapy and has never done any therapeutic work before Mm -hmm. you know I I kind of see it as a valuable tool really for somebody who's who's probably done quite a lot of work already but is just really needing that help so with my breakthrough days um it's um four hours and um I used to do them actually when in the olden days when we used to meet face to face (laughs) (laughs) I used to do like an hour an hour on the telephone and then three hours intense face to face. But now actually I do the whole lot on Zoom, but I spread them out. So I do four individual hours. So it gives people more time actually for reflection and, you know, just to kind of work on the different steps between the sessions, which I think has actually been more beneficial. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's not a quick fix. Recovery from an eating disorder is, is not a quick fix. And um, yeah, I'd really want to stress that really. The breakthrough day, my version is very much for someone that's done some work already and is just mm-hmm. really wanting that extra bit of help to get over those last few hurdles. And I guess like once they've done the breakthrough day, probably doesn't mean they're going to be miraculously cured and like <laughs> completely free of all food issues, but hopefully it's taken them, taken that person to, an, to the next level of their recovery. Yeah. So what sort of things do you talk about? I'm assuming it's not really like symptom reduction or that, that kind of stuff, or maybe it is. Yeah. I mean, really depends a lot on the person actually it's very much tailored specifically to the person but yeah but I mean I mean I really utilize a lot of the things I've just talked about a bit earlier about what I would work on in therapy is in a way I kind of pack a lot of that in to the breakthrough day so what people get as well in my breakthrough day is like a workbook so they have like we sort of look at their past we do like a psychological formulation and then we sort of go through all the different aspects of treatment so obviously you can't cover all of that in four hours but they have the kind of workbook to kind of use as their kind of guide and an ongoing sort of tool with recovery so it can be really variable so for some people actually it might just be working more on the symptom stuff because if they might have done a lot of that deeper work but maybe they're still finding it really hard to properly give up dieting you know there's still some rules helping them break free from that and then there's other people that may on the surface look like they've got a quite a healthy relationship with food but then they're still like really struggling with a lot of um internal guilt that internal critical voice 
So then the work might be more focused on looking at the kind of deeper stuff, maybe family kind of, you know, early life and looking at how that's kind of almost like, again, like that kind of metaphor for how they're living things out in their relationship with food today. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I really like doing the breakthroughs because it's um, very varied <laughs> and interesting. Yeah, it does sound really interesting, um, but also just providing some tools so that they can take this beyond the breakthrough day and help them kind of almost shift the way that they think about their life or shift the way that they question certain things so that moving forward, they can have a bit more clarity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. One last question that I have revolves more around body image. So we talked about the different relationship with food piece, meaning like the patterns, et cetera. How does body image play into somebody who struggles with a binge purge cycle and maybe like sprinkle in there how social media can exacerbate that issue? Just maybe your understanding of it all. Sure. I mean, I think quite a common thing. I think I'm like, I'm running a bulimia group at the moment um, in my national health service work. I think quite a, yeah, (laughs) quite a common Is that international? Um, no, this is like for, sadly not. <laughs> All right, for UK people. Yeah, for UK people. And it's, it's yeah, you have to kind of live in the UK and access it by your doctor, et cetera. It's kind of like, yeah, all of those hurdles. But um, I think what's a very common theme, and obviously, again, I'm generalizing here. This isn't true for everybody. But often people with bulimia may be just holding their weight a bit below probably where their body is happy. So, mm-hmm. so in terms of their body image, they're kind of feeling like, you know, I need to be thinner. I need to be smaller to be okay. And they're sort of chasing maybe a particular number or a particular size. And then of course that's kind of keeping them stuck in these cycles because of they're having to restrict to try and maintain that. And then of course, then they're falling into binging and purging it, and it's this horrible um, cycle. But I think someone with bulimia as well will often feel good. I'm saying that in inverted commas when they're in a restrictive phase. Mm-hmm. And then again, like typical with the bulimic kind of splitting when they're binging or purging, it might feel like really like disgusted, horrible, you know, be very, very, very critical of their body image. So I think someone with bulimia as well is probably going to have enormous swings in their kind of how they're feeling about their body image. And also your body can change physically, not loads, but, you know, if you're kind of restricting Mm -hmm. and then you're massively binging and then you're purging, you know, your body is going to change quite a bit because your physiology or biochemistry is just massively disrupted on a regular basis. So you can kind of, you know, get bloating and, you know, your salivary glands can like really swell up from the acid coming up into your mouth. And all these things as well can really um, impact body image. Yeah. um, That's a big one. So kind of even before the restrict part of the cycle is the poor body image that leads to the restrict, that leads to the bend, that leads to the purge. And then we start all over again. Yeah. It's a horrible cycle, isn't it? It's a horrible cycle. And it's so hard to win at it because of, you know, you might get, yeah, you get a glimmer of maybe success, but it's like sand slipping through your fingers, isn't it really? And And even Mm -hmm. when you get to the number that you think you should be at, you know, it's never good enough. The goalposts always move. Exactly. It's very hard to feel enough. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Before I let you go, can you just share with our listeners where they can find you? Sure. So I'm on Instagram at the eating disorder therapist with underscores between each word. (laughs) (laughs) So I've got a podcast, which is called the eating disorder therapist. And I have a website, which is the eating disorder therapist.co.uk. So any of those places are good. Yeah. And I will add that a lot of the topics that we spoke about today, you have a lot more information on your podcast, on your Instagram and on your website about kind of delving deeper into every single one of these. So if anybody's interested in learning more, they can check it out over there. Yeah. Lovely. That's great. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right, talk next time.